Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public-good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. I was really glad when Dr. Annie Lockhart Gilroy, who is Assistant Professor of Christian Education and Practical Theology, uh, was the first to say, let's do this. Um, and I have several others lined up right now, but Annie, you're the first. And thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this this morning. You are welcome. It is great to be here. Yeah. Now, when did you come to Phillips? I am in my third year. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're, all the dates you're, are coming together now. But yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, especially during COVID, just everything yeah. is kind of moves around. And what were you doing before you moved to Tulsa? Before I moved to Tulsa, I was at Drew University Theological School for two years as assistant professor and Louisville Institute postdoctoral fellow. So I was assistant professor of Christian education at Drew. Okay, yeah, Drew, right, right. And and what was that school that you did your your PhD at that um, that I think you and I both share an affection for? Well, that will be the wonderful, fabulous Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. And your PhD was was it was uh, what year was that? I received my PhD in 2015. 2015. I'm a 1981 MDiv graduate, and <laughs> and then uh, served on faculty and staff for five years there. So also uh, the, the, that it's that's my uh, point of affection in the Chicago area for theological education. Yeah. All right, so. Your faculty title uh, includes the fields of both Christian education and practical theology. Um, And from my own experience, uh, both in taking educational classes, um, in hanging around with educators like Jack Seymour um, and the like, uh, I know that uh, what Christian education means can be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Um, And as one who identifies as a practical theologian, I also know People say, well, practical theology, isn't that preaching and worship and stuff? If you would give a few sentences of explanation, when you're talking about you're in the field of Christian education and you're you're in the field of practical theology, what do you mean by that? Well, because so many people already have assumptions of what it means, I start with what it is not. Mm -hmm. Because people often think of practices. And while we do think about practices and we study practices, A Christian education course or the practical theology course is not solely about how do I do the thing. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the students come into the class and they say, okay, you're going to teach me how to mm-hmm. teach Sunday school, mm-hmm. teach Bible study, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or they say, I mean, isn't everybody here doing Christian education? Because everybody mm-hmm. is teaching right. something, right? right? right. Um, <laughs> So there's a tendency to incorrectly place place the practice of something and name it practical theology, mm-hmm. as opposed to seeing practical theology and the different things that fall within practical theology, not as an applied theology, but as a discipline in of itself in which we study what is happening in places of worship or we study how people think about their spiritual formation mm-hmm. and what are the things that focus on their spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. My definition of practical theology starts with observing what is happening in different places mm-hmm. where religious people are being formed. Mm-hmm. And very often that's a congregation or a mosque. That's a place of worship, but it is also you know, spiritual formation happens in many different places and many different publics, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how do people understand their faith in those spaces? Um, As I study those, then the next step of practical theology is to think about what are the different areas that will help me understand what I am seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a interdisciplinary discipline, right? Mm -hmm. If if that's Mm -hmm. a thing. (laughs) So it's an interdisciplinary discipline. Um, So what I am seeing may... What helps me understand this may be going to systematic theology or going to sociology or going to developmental theology, developmental psychology. For me, as someone who works with youth, I spend a lot of time in youth studies, Mm -hmm. developmental, um, developmental psychology and um, educational theory. And then after, after having conversations with those different areas, it is now what do we do back to when, when working with people back on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So what does this mean mm-hmm. for them? What practices can we bring up, right? So it's a circle. It's a very mm-hmm. circular definition mm-hmm. um, of what I would say I do as a practical theologian. And mm-hmm. I claim both Christian education and practical theology for two reasons. Mm-hmm. My PhD is in Christian education and congregational studies, Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, seek to do both. In addition, I do a lot of youth ministry work, mm-hmm. which many people place under Christian education. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I would contend as a study in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's more than what do we do with the children in Sunday school? Absolutely. Right. right. There has to be pastoral care components. There has to be theology components. There has to be psychology components to it. Um, so I see that as a different thing. And then I also see the field of practical theology as a field unto itself with the definition that I previously gave. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's been a, a, a struggle for at least for 30, 40 years now of trying to say practical theology is something more than the sum total of the disciplines of what a minister does. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, at least making the shift to what ecclesial communities do and how we mm-hmm. reflect upon that with the various tools you were talking about, the social sciences, the humanities, um, and uh, theology, of course. 
Right. And I would have students that say, you know, I've been teaching Sunday school for a while and this is the first time that I've actually taught about thought about teaching. Right. Right. right? That I've that I've actually thought about why why am I doing what I'm doing? Right. 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 And recognizing right. that there's a bigger, longer history when thinking about what do we want this education to do? Yeah. And one of the things that I am most known for saying um, as students that come back and say, well, how do I do the thing? And I'm saying people so often rush to how do I do the thing without spending time trying to figure out what the thing is. Right. How do I think about the thing? Right. How do I think about the thing? What is this thing? What What did this thing thing come from? Right. 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 There's a, there's a realization that people don't all agree on what education is supposed to do. Right. Absolutely not. Right. (laughs) Um, what's something that you enjoy about teaching? There's a lot. I mean, I mm-hmm. I say often that the classroom is, is my my happy place. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest compliment that I get from a student is, <laughs> this is weird, but is, wow, this is really messing me up. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Which is what you actually love to hear, right? I do. <laughs> because it says, you know, you're helping me think about something in a different way. Right. Right. And, you know, and I think because I teach things that people think for some reason or the other are, you know, they can instinctively do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I teach things that are very often associated with just action, knowing the amount of theory behind something mm-hmm. can really cause someone to stop and say, oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I love helping people think about things in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would probably be my favorite thing about teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there is so much that I enjoy about the various conversations I have in classrooms Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about ways to ways to have different educational experiences that is just makes teaching just a, a joy for me. Say, I know you've recently co-edited a book along with um, uh, uh, Anne Streety Wimberly and Nathaniel West, a book called From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that... Um, uh, that is kind of the uh, it, the title, especially the subtitle, really encapsulates mm-hmm. a lot of this committing faith in public idea that we're talking about on these podcasts. So when answering the question I'm about ready to ask, please feel free to talk about the book some, okay. uh, the essays in it, your contribution and the like. So how do you see your work not only as a church discipline, but also as work that intersects with and has relevance for wider publics. So I see Christian education will lead one to think that I'm mostly dealing in churches, right? Right. Um, I see Christian education as spiritual formation and spiritual formation happens in many places, right? It, it, one is not only formed in a variety of places, but they also express their spirituality and beliefs in a variety of places. So one of the things that led to the text was the realization that for, I'm sorry, (laughs) that for at least for Black religious education, 
the audience have have often been outside a congregation's walls. Hmm. Right. When we think, for example, about the civil rights movement, right? Okay. They were often organized, you know, at churches. That's a religious education moment. That's embodied pedagogy. Mm, right. 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 Um, when a pastor says to their congregation, we are going to come on Sunday in our jeans and sneakers with some lawn chairs. We're going to sing a song and we're going to all go line up and vote. That's embodied pedagogy, right? Mm, and that's the okay. formation outside mm-hmm. of the church mm-hmm. walls. And this is not a new phenomena, right? right. Um, right. This, is, this has been happening for a long time. The realization that, you know, the way we live in, encapsulates this idea of the spiritual formation and that mm-hmm. happens beyond church walls, right? Mm-hmm. So in the text, we mm-hmm. talk about prison ministry, Um, You know, there's a chapter on Black Lives Matter and seeing that as a manifestation of critical pedagogy. Uh Right. Um, We talk about womanist education and different ways of knowing. Right. Because religious education also helps us think about the different ways in which we know Uh and different ways in which we learn. Right. Uh Because we often Uh think about as education as something that is happening in the classroom with someone in front of us telling us things that we are writing down and therefore feeding back. However, I think about the greatest life lessons I learned were in the kitchen with my mother. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And I know that many people share similar stories, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, That those, those conversations are the things that stick the most with us and form us the most. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there are all, all sorts of spaces. It happens everywhere. Right. Um, right. And it's always happened everywhere. So we wanted to think about where is it happening now? Right. Um, and where does it need to happen? And in your chapter, you talk quite a bit about virtual spaces. Yes. Um, say, a little more, say a little more about that. Yes. Little did I know when I wrote it, where we would be today. Yes, really, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm off, I've for a while now seen virtual spaces as a future of ways that we gather, little did I know how it will be rushed along um, Mm -hmm. with the pandemic. There are several things about virtual spaces that changes our formation and -hmm. changes the way that we do education. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wrote about was, was how in some ways how egalitarian it can be. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, because what you need to be a trendsetter is a Twitter account or a Facebook account, right? Like, I mean, you know, people are social media influencers, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, and hold a lot of sway because of what they tweet. That one, that it opens up leadership for many, right? Mm-hmm. One of the critiques about Black Lives Matter and current movements is that there is no leader, Right. Mm. There is no one Mm. figure that one can point to. And I heard one activist say this movement isn't leaderless. It is leader full. Right. Right. There are many people who are leading. And because there are many people and because you are able to organize because you have a smartphone in your hand, the movements are also far more contextual. Right. Right. Much more difficult to generalize. 
Right. Right. Because the needs in Baltimore are different than the needs in Minneapolis, which are different from the needs in Tulsa. Right. There, of course, are similarities. Right. Um, Right. But, you know, it's not hierarchical in a way that one message is distributed in all these channels. Yeah. Right. And, and you can you can gather people quickly with a hashtag. Right. Right. So because of those things, I've seen this as the beginning of the movement. I mean, the future of different movements. Right. Now, there's some downsides to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many that would say that they are activists because they do hashtags. Right. And that is the right. end right. of the work that they do. Right. Um, however, I'm sure that we have both met people who swear that they were marching on the streets during the civil rights movement, um, to which I doubt that to be true. Right. So people are often likely to overemphasize the work that they do and have done in the name of justice. And I think that virtual spaces also allow us to be together in a variety of ways. Right. I mean, the fact that you and I are together at the moment in different spaces in different homes Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know for many throughout this pandemic are gathering with people that they haven't gathered with in years, mm-hmm. you know, um, and mm-hmm. doing various activities with um, mm-hmm. that. It allows you to be in the same space with people who you who, you know, 50 years ago, you would have lost touch with because they moved. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. It also changes dynamics in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um for years, teachers have talked talked about, you know, the lines of not being the sage on the stage or the, you know, it said right. you want to be the guide on the side. Right. Right. Side, right. right. Um, however, in the classroom, even though I don't try to be try to be the stage on the stage, I am often standing up in front simply because that's where the board is, right? Mm -hmm. I want people Mm -hmm. to see me, right? Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. often where the podium and the electronics that I need is. When I'm in a Zoom classroom, I'm just one of the boxes, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that create, that in and of itself present a different, like just virtual cue, I'm sorry, visual cue of, of the role of the educator in really not being, the stage on the stage because there there is mm-hmm. no stage mm-hmm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. right so for all of these different things i see how the virtual spaces are changed is changing the way that we organize protests the way that one becomes a leader and an activist and for so many it levels the playing field mm-hmm. um, you know um mm-hmm. I have chronic pain in a way that does not allow me to do a whole lot of marching. Right. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people with disabilities that, Mm -hmm. you know, that can't necessarily participate in which they're always demanded. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But anybody with a webcam can have a YouTube channel and anybody with, um, with a computer can have a podcast or a blog or, you know, or organize or do a variety of things mm-hmm. that they were limited to before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is, you know, it is not, it may not be a final frontier, but it is indeed the future frontier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. when I wrote it, I thought it was the future frontier and now it's here. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, one more question about the book. So the, 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 the title is from lament to advocacy. Mm-hmm. Could you say, could you say a little bit about 
why that title? Mm-hmm. As we changed around different titles, um, one of the things that kept coming up was the power and the need for lament. Mm-hmm. Right. Lament, which I would argue is something that is not often embraced in U.S. American culture. No, right. right? It's like, just, you know, shake it off, right? right. <laughs> Get over it, power through, right? These are the things that we think about. Um, but there was, a, there was a realization that many of the things that were happening, right? So Anne Wimbley in her chapter on lament and in her, in her introduction talks about the pain caused when thinking about recent events, right? And recent uh-huh. events, when we first started about this book, were things like Trayvon Mar- Martin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tamir Rice was a story that did me in personally. Like, here's a 12-year-old uh-huh. playing with a toy in a park. In many ways, it is unhealthy to just simply move forward right. <laughs> without giving space for laments. Okay. And then also realizing that advocacy and movement and activism come out of that space of hurt and pain and anger and the need for better, Mm -hmm. right? In no way do we mean that this is a linear approach, right? Like we we are met and then we move up Mm -hmm. and then we're advocates. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, it is a cycle, right? Right. There's, there is, there is a regular need for laments, um, the prayer is there won't be a regular need for lament for, for forever. Um, but we're in an era where every couple of months, if you're lucky, if not sooner, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there will be a new hashtag of a black person who was killed by the police, even though they were unarmed. Right. Right. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that requires lament, you know, mm-hmm. um, And without that hashtag, there are millions of Black people who get scared and panic when they see police because they don't want to be a hashtag, Mm -hmm. right? And that requires lament. Mm -hmm. Um, And our lament feeds our advocacy Mm -hmm. and our activism. Mm -hmm. And, And we also realize that we are advocating for others Mm -hmm. and we are advocating for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, Last question. So uh, what are you working on now or or as soon as whatever it is, is cleared off your desk, what what do you want to be working on? Um, My first reaction is I want to take a nap. Because, um, because I will, I will also state that I had another book come out this summer called Nurturing the Sanctified Imagination of Urban Youth, oh, okay. um, which is more so focused on what congregations can do while working with youth in their area, their neighborhoods, their ministries. Cool. Okay. Um, and I am working on a chapter um, which is currently titled Twice is Perfect for a book that's talking about youth and mistakes. Ah. And I am looking at um, Black youth that are in these high pressure situations. I am particularly focused on independent schools because that is the world where I taught before this theological mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And it's a very 
high stakes mm-hmm. world, right? And a lot of high pressure and there's a call for perfection for many. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, there's the old adage for black people that we have to be twice as good to be considered mm-hmm. right equal or to even get half as much. Right. Right. But what does that mean for, for black students in these high pressure situations? Like how is one twice as perfect? Right. 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 Um, so that I'm working on and doing a number of short form writing, blog posts, articles, because um, I'm sure as, as you are aware, as people have been thrusted into this virtual space, there is a lot of call on practical theologians to help reflect on what is happening. Right. <laughs> right? So those in liturgy and homiletics are helping folks think about how, you know, what does corporate worship mean when we're not, you know, physically together. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is one of the times when many practical theologians are being called on to say, okay, what is, what is happening? How do we react? Do what it is that you do. <laughs> um, right. So right. I'm doing a lot of that and having a lot of conversations. Hence my, future project is to take a nap. <laughs> so. Very good. <laughs> we certainly don't want for interesting, interesting, engaging, important work right now. Right. A lot of important stuff going on. Indeed. <laughs> good. Dr. Annie Lockhart-Gilroy, or as her students call her, Dr. LG, thanks so much for uh, spending some time. And I really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to seeing you in person one of these days soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.